And all God's people said, amen. So um, as Greg mentioned, I was the lead pastor here for about six years. Um, it's unbelievable to me that I retired from the lead pastor job five years ago. Went like that. It is a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, it seems a long time ago to Greg because now he carries the load. Um, and some of you, you know, I know, and some of you know me, and you're right now going, there's something different about Rev. Is it a new hairstyle? Has he gotten grayer? Or has he lost 60 pounds? <laughs> Item C, thank you very much. Yeah, and some people are very kind, like they don't know quite what to say about weight loss because at my age, they're kind of going, are you okay? Which is an acceptable way of saying, are you sick? And my answer is, yes, I am. I was sick. I was sick of being overweight, so I did something about it. Um, so I've been healthy. Um, it's been good. The last time I actually preached here at Elmhurst Church on this platform was uh, Labor Day weekend of 2021. And I can remember exactly when it was. Um, I, 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 I preached the sermon. I led the service. I stepped down off the platform. And everybody, everything seemed just a little weird. I mean, like weirder than usual on Sunday mornings. I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. I remember having a conversation with Greg, which I vaguely remembered. I had a conversation with Klein, which I couldn't make sense of, but that's not that unusual. I, I just didn't feel right. And so my cure, my go-to when I don't feel well, McDonald's Diet Coke cures all problems. So I got in my car, I drove to McDonald's, I sat in the line, tried to order through the drive through and finally people were honking their horns and the person was screaming at me through the intercom and saying, we can't understand a word you're saying, we don't know what's going on, you just have to move. So what do you do next? You drive home. I drove home and I couldn't, I didn't use the button in my car to open the garage door, I tried to punch in the code, I wasn't doing anything that made sense and I went inside and Becky said, you don't make sense. And I'm going, yeah, okay. It's been 49 years of that. Um, but long story short, um, I apparently had a TIA stroke that day. Um, and had all the tests and everything. They can't figure out exactly why it happened. They give me some medicine. I should be okay. I'm going to be great. Pastor Greg came and visited me in the hospital. It was a wonderful visit. He's such a good friend and a pastor. Meant a lot to me. But then when he wrote me, a, a, an email a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago about preaching on this Sunday. He said, I hesitate to do this after what happened last time. <laughs> Which was more about him than me. He didn't want to have to pick me up after off the floor if it happened again. But um, So I'm glad, I'm glad that we're here. I have to give a special shout out over there to my section of the worship center where Becky and I usually sit on, so, yeah, sit on Sunday mornings. There you are. You're over there. Good to see you all. Nice of you to show up. You must not have known I was preaching today. Um, <laughs> But it was good not to have the off-key uh, loud singer in your section this morning. That was probably good for all of you. Um, we've been hanging out together this summer at Elmer's Church um, in, in this first commandment. Um, and I, I had enough training in teaching, and I was a pastor long enough to realize that not everybody, even if you've heard every sermon in this series, remembers everything that was said. And so let's, let me just give you a little summary of where we've been, kind of catch up, and then dive into what I want to talk about this morning. Um, just a reminder, this is what it says in the first commandment from Exodus 20, starting at verse 1. 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. And in the first message that we had about idols, Greg kind of reminded us about the general idea about what idol, form idols can take, and simply defined idolatry as anything that replaces God as the number one thing in our life. Anything that replaces God as the number one thing. And it can be a lot of different things. And so then we went on to kind of look at these things. What are American idols? What are the idols that you and I have? What do we battle on a regular basis? Common, everyday things. They're not limited to statues or carvings or the sun or the moon or thunder or lightning or anything like that. They can be very common things that we're not even aware is an idol for us, but they are if we stop and look and listen. We talked about how political viewpoints can be an idol. In our nation, you're on one side or the other, and not only do you worship, your idolatry is limited to the political viewpoint that you hold or the platform of that party or the institutions that they have, and the other side is the enemy. That makes it an idol. Your side is right, their side is wrong. That makes it an idol. You don't listen to any other opinions. That makes it an idol. Last week, uh, Pastor Klein did show and tell. He had all the sports trophies out here and he was talking how sports, and he, and he owned it himself, which was great, right? He, he was not preaching anyone. He said, I'm preaching to myself. Sports is an idol for him. I don't understand that. I don't like sports, but Jeff does. Actually, I have more trophies than him. I just couldn't bring him today. So, <laughs> politics, not bad. It's not a bad thing. I was a political science major. I love politics until it gets ugly and dirty. I love sports. Sports is not a bad thing. It's only bad when we make it bad, when it becomes an obsession, when it gets out of perspective or out of proportion. And I don't think any of us set out to go, you know what? I think I'm going to make sports my idol. That isn't the way you start out. You start out innocently, and then it starts to consume you. I'm going to make music my idol. No, you, you like music, and then all of a sudden music becomes so consuming that it becomes your idol. We don't start out saying we're going to make this an idol. It becomes an idol, and most of the time we kind of ease into it, and we're, we're not even sure what happened or how we got there, but sometime we wake up, hopefully, and discover that that's the case. For some people, work is their idol. And this great quote from John Calvin, because I wouldn't be reformed unless I quoted Calvin, the human heart is a factory of idols. And what he is alluding to there is what I just described. We don't start out to make things an idol, but in our heart they become that way and we make them that. So today I want to look at another form of idolatry that Jesus teaches about in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So the context is that Jesus was teaching a group of people. The scripture said it was a hillside of people filled there. Not sure exactly how it all happened. But some people have suggested that if you took all the teaching of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and you got rid of everything except the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'd have the essence of what Jesus wanted us to know. This is the stuff. I'm glad we have the other stuff because it gives me more things to preach about. But (laughs) Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is from Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about the concerns that we have in everyday life. You know, how we live, what we wear, what we eat, what we drink. Listen to what he says in verses 31 through 35, which is kind of a summary toward the end of his teaching on these things. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Hang on to that, all right? They're not bad. Our Heavenly Father knows that we need what we wear, what we eat, what we drink. He knows we need that. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, or because of that teaching, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. I have a friend who's an investment counselor. He helps people, you know, manage their money, prepare for retirement, um, set up various investments, and he's told me stories about that profession. I know we have some of you in the room, the ones who are tearing their hair out right now because of our economy. But he says... He's told me, he said, you know, I have clients who call me all the time about their investments, but the phone rings off the hook when the stock market starts to dip and it starts to go down. And as it goes down, they'll call me every single day about what to do and how to do it and where should I go and how should I maneuver and all this other stuff they want to know about their investments and what's going to happen. (laughs) Wouldn't we all like to know what's going to happen? There are people who are obsessed about their investment. They look at their portfolio every single day. Not a bad thing. I kind of get it. But none of us can control it, including our investment counselors. All they can do is kind of advise us is what to do. People get obsessed with these things, though. We get obsessed with money. Some people get obsessed about clothes, others about shoes, some about cars, some about electronics. I remember one time getting, I think I've said this before, but I'm old, so I forget. Um, I remember getting an advertisement in the mail from a a telephone carrier one time about new phones that were available. And you want to know what the advertisement said to entice me to get a new phone? To satisfy your need for new. That's it. That's it. Some people have to have the newest, latest thing, right? How else do you explain people who sleep overnight in the sidewalk outside the Apple store to get the newest phone? I mean, I don't do that. I pay someone else to do it for me. Some are obsessed with homes and second homes. We collect a lot of stuff in America. 
we live in a nice little townhouse development. Everybody's things neat and tidy. We're all old people, kind of. Um, but a lot of people in our, in, in our development, you know, park their cars outside their garage. I, I don't really understand that, but I do when they open the garage door. Their garage is full of stuff. They couldn't get a car in there if they tried. One of the most booming businesses in America today, storage facilities. They're everywhere. Now they've gone upscale so you can pay more to store more stuff. We have so much stuff, we have to rent someplace to put our stuff. We have stuff at our house that we're saving for our great-grandchildren, I think. I don't know. Beck, what are we doing with all this stuff? Someone might want that. Oh, yeah, someone might. Let them buy it at a garage sale. Now, I have my own issues with stuff. Uh, some people know, Greg knows this, but not everybody knows that I have a thing about hats, okay? This is my hat collection, but it's not all of my hats. Oh, there's an H hat there. What is that for, huh? Anyway, oh, there's a Chicago Bears hat. There's an, oh, I was reminded today, that Oregon hat I bought, I bought it exactly six years ago on this weekend when I was in Oregon officiating a wedding for a member of our congregation for, yeah. Now, this is not all my hats because this is just my winter hats because my summer hats are in the closet in another stack. I've got hats upon hats. I could never wear all of these hats. Some I only wear on certain occasions. Some I don't want to wear when I'm golfing or outside because then you get sweat all over them and you got to wash them and then you have to buy a new hat. For some people, it's shoes. Anybody know anybody with a shoe thing? Okay, don't raise your... Oh, you, you have a shoe thing? Thank you for being honest. Did you talk about that with God in the prayer confession we had a minute ago? Because Some people, jeans, right? Dresses, suits. I had a friend who had, he told me one time, I have 25 golf shirts in my closet that still have the tags that are in the package. They haven't even been opened yet. 25. I'm going, well, get rid of some of them. Like, give some to me. Money. None of them are bad things. Hats are not a bad thing. Hats are great. Ask me, I'll tell you. But if you're obsessed with anything like that, it becomes an idol. It becomes, if you're spending money, you shouldn't spend on something. It's the first clue that it's an idol. And if you want to identify your idols, if you want to look and see, well, I'm not sure what, I have an idol. Let me, let me just give you two suggestions. It's not new to me. It's from other people as well. Look at your calendar and your checkbook, and you'll find out what your idols are. How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? Those are usually the things that are our idols. Now, our obsession with material things and money is not the problem in and of itself. It's a symptom of another problem. And the problem is that somehow we're trying to fill a void in our life. Something is missing. And somehow we've come to think that these things will fix it. If I just had these things, then I'll feel better about myself. My life will change. People will like me more. Whatever the case might be, acceptance, status, power, self-worth. Those are the deeper issues that we are trying to satisfy with stuff. 
Have you ever had this experience where there is something that you want or something that maybe you don't even want? Did anybody do the Amazon days things last, last, last week? You go online to Amazon, they had Amazon sale, you can go on Amazon, Amazon days, is that what they call it, right? Did you, you go on there and there's stuff that you don't need, but it's advertised, and if you're Dutch, it's on sale, so you buy it, even if you don't need it, because it's on sale. But have you ever had the experience where you, there's something you want to buy? And if you had that, you would be satisfied. It doesn't make any difference. It could be a new car. could be a house. could be a second home. could be an airplane. could be a new hat. Whatever. If I had that hat, my collection would be complete. And then I buy the hat. And I will guarantee that two weeks later, there's another hat that I would need. Because I have that hat already. So now there's another one that I need. The reality is, is that whatever void I'm trying to fill has not been satisfied with that particular purchase. We do with things and money what Greg and Jeff suggested that we do with politics and sports. We don't start out saying, I think I'm going to worship these things, but soon they overtake our life and they become the number one thing. And that's when they become idols. So Jesus' suggestion is, well, don't worry about these things. Don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Now, telling someone not to worry is a little bit like telling someone not to breathe. You know, we are people for whom worrying is natural, right? I have some friends who this year are sending their kids off to college for the first time. I will guarantee that they will worry. They will worry about those kids. You know, will their living situation be okay? Will they get along with their roommate? Are, are they going to go to class ever? What are they going to eat when they're there? Are they going to make friends? How are we going to pay for this? I mean, it's the, you're filled with worry. These are the things we worry about. Worry is natural. Worry is a part of life. Jesus isn't saying that we should never worry, and he's not talking about that kind of worry. He's talking about the kind of worry that moves into an obsession, worry that makes us sick, worrying about things that are difficult for us to control, and then worry controls us. And we're constantly worrying we can't sleep at night. In his commentary on this text, Michael Wilkins says, worry is inappropriate when it is misdirected, is in wrong proportion, or indicates a lack of trust in God. When it's misdirected, inappropriate, wrong proportion, or a lack of trust in God. My son taught junior high for eight years, and we did not commit him to asylum after that. He did something else. But he taught junior high for eight years in an upper-class suburb in the Chicago area. And he would have moms that were so concerned about their junior high kids and how they were going to perform, they were constantly after him as a teacher. But he said the most obsessive thing about these people was that some of them would come into the junior high during the day and clean their kids' locker and organize it for them. Huh? I mean, they were so worried about their kids and how they were going to what other thing was all organized. They came in and did it for them. They were obsessed with their children. And I know that sounds a little nuts, but I can introduce you to these people. 
Worry and worry about wealth are idolatrous when they go to extremes, when, when we are obsessed, when they're out of proportion to their intended use. But Jesus doesn't identify a problem without offering a solution. Sounds simple to us. It rolls off our tongue very easily. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. When we're seeking God first in our life, all these things will be added unto us. Does that mean I'm going to have a big pile of money that never goes away? Does that mean I have everything that I want? Absolutely not. You know what seeking first the kingdom of God does? It gives you perspective on life. It sorts out your priorities. I no longer need all those hats. Well, that's not true. Don't go that far. We don't need the stuff we think we need because the number one thing is that relationship with Jesus and he settled all that for us. That's how he adds it on to us. It puts it in the right proportions. And there's a lot of stuff in life that if we just seek Jesus first, it put things in a proper perspective. Now this principle of seeking first the kingdom of God and fighting our idols with that can be applied to many areas of church life as well. Within the life of the church, we have a tendency to elevate things to a level of importance that they're not intended to have. And we obsess and worry about things and the way that things are done in the life of a congregation. We have things that we like about our churches and the way they do things. And it's a very short trip from what I like to this is the way it ought to be. This is what I like. Oh, no, this is the way it ought to be. I like this. Everybody should like this. It should always be that way. It, it's a short trip. Things become traditions that we have a hard time giving up. Now, I'm going to share some of those things. And the things that I'm going to share are things I've actually experienced in 48 years of ministry. I'm not going to make up tales, all right? I could, because I'm really good at it, but I'm not going to make anything up. How do traditions even get started? There's a story of uh, a young couple who are early married and uh, the man decides to fix dinner for his wife and he's going to fix her a beautiful ham dinner and he's got all the stuff that goes with it and he cooks the ham in a pan and he puts it on the table and places it before her on a platter and, and she notices that the end is cut off the ham. And she goes, well, why did you cook it that way? Why did you cut off the end? Well, that's the way my mom always did it, so that's the way I did it interesting she said i wonder if there's something that i didn't learn when i was growing up so they go to easter dinner at his family's house ham is on the platter sure enough the end is cut off and so his wife says to her mother-in-law why do you do it that way well that's the way my mother did it so that's why i've always done it a couple years later they go to grandma's house for easter dinner ham is on the platter sure enough the end is cut off well, Grandma, why do you do it that way? Well, because the full ham wouldn't fit in the pan, so I cut off the end just so it would fit. <laughs> and that's how the tradition got started. Absolutely nothing to do with the taste of the ham, the cooking of the ham, the properness of the ham, but it became a tradition, and that's the way you did it. Churches are filled with traditions, with the way we do things, with what we do and how we do them, how they should be done. And when I was growing up younger, and even in this congregation, until COVID hit, we served communion, right, in silver trays, right? 
the elders would come down in their suits and ties. They'd all stand around the communion table. They'd have the silver trays, and they'd go, and they'd pass them to you. You'd take the little cup out, and that's the way you serve communion, right? That's the way it should be done, doggone it. And then COVID hit, and we discovered, you know what? It doesn't have to be done that way. We could actually get a little plastic to-go cup with gluten-free wafers on one side and juice on the other. And it never changes the significance or meaning of the sacrament. It's the same thing. In theological terms, we talk about the sacrament being a great mystery. I don't understand whether it gets better in a tray or not better in a tray. I don't understand whether it's better in a tray. It doesn't make any difference. The Holy Spirit uses whatever we take. It's not the tradition that we worship. It's the exercise of the Lord's Supper. When you've been in ministry for 48 years, I started in the 70s, and there, there was basically a, a tradition around pastoral attire. What do pastors wear when they preach? This is a, this, it's hard to see, it's a little grainy, but that's actually me, the cool college chaplain with the beard and the long hair. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you didn't know I was that cool, did you? Back in the 70s, I was that cool. And do you notice what I have on? A robe and a stole. And my partner in chaplaincy at the college, Jerry Van Heest, has on the preaching robe, the Genevan robe. With, you know, the we, were, we were to the nines on Sunday morning. Today, not so much. Now, I am a better preacher today than I was in the 70s because I've had 47 years of practice. <laughs> I wasn't a better preacher because I wore a robe. I wore a robe at Christ Church of Oakbrook. I wasn't a better pastor at Christ Church of Oakbrook than I am today because I was inexperienced. I was still learning. It has nothing to do with what I wear every Sunday. I served with a staff member once at a church I served in who was from a different theological persuasion. Um, and in his theological persuasion, celebration, joy, laughter, that's what, you, that's, that's what you accentuated. Jesus brought joy into your life, which I don't deny whatsoever. I like joy. I'm all about it, okay? But it went so far for him that he didn't like the season of Lent because Lent is not joyful. And he particularly disliked Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Too somber, too negative, too much about death and dying and suffering. And, uh, he didn't even want to participate. Was I right or was he right? Which tradition is right? I could worship in either tradition, kind of. So now you're waiting, aren't you? I'm going to step into this landmine because I don't have a job anymore and you can't fire me. <laughs> but hang on to your seat, Rob. So there's nothing in the world that has caused more angst in the church than church music and the transition of church music. I've lived through the worship wars. I'm scarred. I'm bruised. I've dodged bullets and hand grenades, but I'm still alive. Okay? Some people really love what we call traditional music. The hymns that we sing played by the organ and the piano. That's what I grew up with. That's what I live with in the churches I served for most of my life until about the mid-90s. Thought it was great. Some people, however, find the organ and the piano and that kind of music, you know, boring. They want more contemporary music. And it's a little bit like politics. We divide on one side or the other. 
And I've heard people say, drums have no, they should never be on a platform. Get rid of those things. That's disgusting. God doesn't want that there. And I'm going, I didn't see that in the Bible, but okay. And others will say, I can't worship if it's organ or the piano. It's too boring for me. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and strip away all the things that you like and don't like and just realize that it's what you like and don't like and it isn't God's preferred way of doing things, it can change everything and you can worship to anything. This morning at my request, I'll own this one, we sang the song Reckless Love. That song destroys me every time we sang it. And I'm sure that the Bodhis wondered, is Rev going to be able to preach? He's crying through this whole song. Especially the verse that says, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You've been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, anyone? When I didn't feel worthy, you paid it all for me. You gave your life. You said I was so worthy that your son would die on the cross on my behalf. You've been so, so kind to me. Wrecks me every time because that's my biography. But I was equally moved by holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning. Well, not that early. It was 10. But early in the morning. Early in the morning. Our song will rise to thee. It isn't what I like or don't like. It isn't this tradition or that tradition. It's about seeking first the kingdom of God. John Calvin is right. The human heart is a factory of idols. But when we kneel and seek first the kingdom of God, everything changes. Will you pray with me, please? Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are willing to put up with all of our idiosyncrasies. They're really to tolerate our idol worship but do you also give us a means to overcome it? We thank you, O oh Lord, for your overwhelming love and graciousness that we experience every single day. May God bless us, everyone. Amen.